Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi Yan Cheng. And Yingyi is joined by Christopher Joy. I'm a portfolio manager at Coolabar Capital Investments. So, Chris, with the apparent end of the central bank hiking cycles in sight for some, January was another very constructive month for performance with a positive correlation between long-duration fixed-rate bonds and equities once again reasserting itself. Yeah, that's right, Yingers. Uh, all of Coolabar's absolute return strategies delivered another month of robust performance, which has been particularly striking over the last circa seven months. Care of attractive new primary market bond issues, mean reversion in asset prices, and historically high underlying portfolio yields. Pleasingly, the minority of Coolabar's benchmark aware, as opposed to absolute return, portfolios also comfortably beat their indices. That's right, Chris. And in January, both equities and fixed rate or long duration bonds rallied firmly. The S&P 500 and the ASX All Ordinaries Index both jumped by a little more than 6%, while the higher octane NASDAQ Composite Bond Index bounced 10.7%. And this was powered by an accumulation of evidence that core inflation rates have peaked globally and are now rolling over in concert with weaker economic activity data, which pushed long-term government bond yields, also known as discount rates, down sharply. The US 10-year government bond yield slumped 36 basis points in January from 3.87% to 3.51%. The move was even larger in Australia, where the 10-year Commonwealth government bond yield plunged 50 basis points from 4.05% to 3.55%. This significant downward re-rating of long-term interest rates boosted the value of fixed-rate bonds. The local fixed, as opposed to floating rate benchmark, the Osborne Composite Bond Index, delivered a very strong 2.76% in January, while Coolabar's active composite bond strategy outperformed, returning 3.13%. The Australian floating rate note proxy, the Osborne FRN Index, which carries no interest rate duration risk since all bonds within it are variable rate, continued its recent winning streak returning 0.39% in January, care of a healthy underlying yield, which was 4.42% and up from only 0.5% in 2021. Coolabar's RBA cash plus 1% strategy, called the Smarter Money Fund, returned 55 basis point gross or 50 basis point net in January. Coolabar's RBA cash plus 1.5% strategy, called the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund, returned 54 basis points gross or 46 basis points net. Both these strategies have zero interest rate duration, carry an average A-plus credit rating, and have demonstrated daily liquidity since inception. Higher up the risk spectrum, Coolabar's new floating rate high yield fund delivered a higher 92 basis point gross in January, or 83 basis points net. Finally, Coolabar's long short credit fund, which likewise carries no duration and has an average AA- rating, returned 103 basis points in January, gross, or 97 basis points net. This performance accrued in the absence of substantial credit spread compression in fixed income markets. There was a torrent of new bond supply globally in January, which Coolabar participated in aggressively, given some handsome new issue concessions. But spreads were largely unchanged over the month. At the top of the capital stack, Coolabar's proprietary index of five-year major bank spreads moved one basis point tighter from 102 basis points to 101 basis points over BBSW in January. One step down the capital structure, our index of five-year major bank T2 bond spreads was unchanged at 234 basis points. And in the comparatively rich AT1 hybrid market, we observed spreads drifting wider from 229 basis points to 237 basis points for five-year major bank securities. 
A similar story asserted in the state government bond or semis market, where our index of 10-year New South Wales spreads was mostly unchanged in January at an historically very elevated 75 basis points over Commonwealth bonds, despite extraordinarily strong buying of semis from bank balance sheets desperate to hoover up high-yielding assets that qualify for their substantial regulatory liquidity needs. This enormous demand was, however, partly satiated by strong issuance or supply from TCB, which represents Victorian taxpayers. Yeah, Yingers, Kulabar was a very active participant in the global new bond issue market, known as the primary market, which carried some pretty attractive concessions. Early in the month, CBA hit the Aussie dollar market and issued three-year and five-year AA-rated bonds at 90 basis points. 115 basis points. Of the bank bill swap rate. The fixed rate versions of these bonds priced at interest rates of 4.76% and 5.05% per annum. Both have since moved sharply tighter. NAB and Macquarie Bank issued 10-year triple B plus rated T2 bonds in the US dollar market on fixed interest rates of 6.43% and 6.80% per annum. Again, both performed robustly, moving about 35 basis points tighter in spread terms. Staying in the US, CBA and NAB issued two-year, three-year and five-year senior bonds carrying AA-minus ratings, yielding around 5% per annum. All have since performed. In euros, ANZ issued a 1 billion euro tier 2 bond, which swapped back into Aussie dollars at a rate of 6.35% or 275 basis points above BBSW, or the bank bill swap rate, and that is also currently sharply tighter. Westpac also hit the euro market, issuing three-year and seven-year senior bonds that are currently about 10 basis points tighter in spread terms. Back in the Aussie dollar market, Rabobank issued an A-plus rated five-year senior bond at a spread of 118 basis points above BBSW or on a fixed interest rate of 4.75% per annum. And this is again now trading at a materially lower credit spread. Finally, Bendigo uh, and Bank of Queensland issued four-year triple B plus rated senior bonds in Aussie dollars at 135 basis points over BBSW or on a fixed interest rate of around 5% per annum. And they are now trading about 10 to 20 basis points tighter. And Chris, we are forecasting substantial ongoing bond supply globally. In Europe, banks are reducing their reliance on the ECB's lending facilities and leaning more heavily on debt markets. Banks also have to meet loss-absorbing capacity targets that will necessitate further supply. In Australia, banks have to repay the $188 billion that they borrowed off from the RBA starting in March this year. On Coolabar's estimates, the majors have to issue a further circa $19 billion a year in T2 bonds to meet APRA's loss-absorbing capacity targets which is a similar run rate to what they have raised in recent years. At the margin, slower bank balance sheet growth as a result of higher interest rates may mitigate the size of this task. But the bottom line is that there will be no shortage of high-yielding and highly-rated debt issuance for investors to feast on. Yeah, I can't disagree with that, Yingers, and we've certainly enjoyed this uh, torrent of supply. I want to turn, Yingers, to a question that has puzzled market participants since last year, and that's whether banks and insurers would repay their 81 hybrids and T2 bonds on the first available repayment or call date. This concern was triggered by a letter APRA sent banks on the 1st of November, highlighting specific hurdles they needed to surmount in order to satisfy the requirements of one of APRA's prudential standards known as APS 111. The point being that they'd have to satisfy these tests in order to secure APRA's approval to repay hybrids and T2 bonds on the first available call date. In late January 2023, Westpac announced that APRA had indeed approved its repayment of a $250 million T2 bond on its first call date. And this was seen as a key test case for the application 
of APRA's regulatory standards in this context. Based on our analysis, we had assumed that Westpac would repay the bond on its first call date. Nevertheless, APRA's 1 November letter sent Aussie bank and insurer credit spreads on their Tier 2 bonds soaring as much as 50 to 80 basis points wider on some measures. Aussie Bank Tier 2 quickly became some of the highest spread bonds globally compared to similar securities. We were happy to pick up these assets prior to APRA's letter and even more eager in the period thereafter. Spreads on Tier 2 bonds have been very wide compared to long-term historical averages and also relative to riskier securities from the same issuer lower down the capital stack. In fact, Coolabar was the first manager to highlight the historically unprecedented development, whereby the spreads on triple B plus rated five-year major bank tier two bonds were actually trading wider or higher than the spreads on riskier and triple B minus rated five-year major bank hybrids. Typically, 81 hybrids are paid about 1.8 to 1.9 times the spread on maturity matched tier two bonds from the same issuer. Global investors fretted that APRA would prevent Aussie banks and insurers repaying their 81 hybrids and T2 bonds on their first call date if and only if the original issue margins or spreads above the bank of swap rate at the time of the bond issue were very tight or cheap for the issuer compared to the current spreads on the replacement 81 hybrid or T2 securities. And in fact, Chris, Coolabar's analysis of this subject was broadly as follows. Firstly, in late 2022, two forthcoming Tier 2 maturities from AMP and Challenger had precipitated the contentious APRA letter, the lies of which had not been seen from any other regulator globally, i.e. regulators have not attempted to interfere with call dates on regulatory capital securities during normal market conditions. In seeking to repay these bonds, AMP and Challenger had not met APRA's APS 111 very granular requirements. Specifically, APS 111 demands that institutions submit a detailed, quote, economic and prudential case, end quote, if they are seeking to repay 81 hybrids or T2 bonds that were issued on credit spreads that are tighter, i.e. cheaper for the issuer, than the spreads of the replacement securities that would be used to refinance them. AMP and Challenger had issued new T2 bonds in late 2022 on spreads of 465 basis points and 355 basis points above BBSW, markedly higher than the T2 bonds they were wanting to repay, which had been issued at 180 basis points and 210 basis points above BBSW, respectively. AMP and Challenger are not regular issuers of T2 and appeared not to be intimately familiar with APRA's focus on adhering to APS 111's strict terms and conditions. As much more regular issuers of Tier 2, the major banks do ordinarily make detailed economic and prudential submissions to APRA when seeking approval to repay their regulatory capital securities. The major banks appeared shocked that AMP and Challenger had not followed the same due process. And Coolabar arrived at the conclusion that APRA would approve the repayment of the AMP and Challenger Tier 2 bonds in late 2022 only once these institutions properly revised their core submissions to the regulator to fully meet APS 111's needs, which they had not previously done. Following the required adjustments from the issuers, APRA did ultimately approve both call notices and both bonds were therefore repaid on their first available call date. Westpac had an upcoming maturity in early February 2023. This security was a particular focus for global investors because it was issued on a tight credit spread of just 140 basis points above BBSW. It was also a very small T2 line of only $250 million held by exclusively institutional investors. In recent months, many large global banks had caught out the first available date historically cheap 81 hybrids and T2 bonds issued on spreads that were materially below prevailing spreads. In one example, UBS called the cheapest hybrid issued in the post-GFC period on a rating-adjusted basis. 
The originally proposed Basel III regulations that AVS 111 is intended to emulate and the European application of these regulations focus on the replacement of existing AT1 hybrids or T2 bonds with securities that are, quote, sustainable for the income capacity of the institution, end quote. This is arguably more nuanced than APS 111, which is predicated on a more primitive test comparing the credit spread on the old AT1 hybrid or T2 bond to the spread on the replacement securities rather than the issuers over the horizon or intertemporal costs of capital. If the spread on the old security is below the new security, APS 111 claims that this is an uneconomic call for the issuing institution, which then needs to furnish APRA with a secondary, quote, economic and prudential case, end quote, for the replacement of their cheaper incumbent security. Of course, banks are in practice very rationally replacing cheaper 81 hybrids or T2 bonds with more expensive securities because they are minimising their through-the-cycle cost of capital, as opposed to simply minimising the cost of one specific 81 or T2 security. Minimising their intertemporal cost of capital on T2 is especially important for Aussie banks because APRA has given them the toughest T2 issuance requirements of any institutions globally, which necessitates about $19 billion of annual T2 supply from the majors alone, based on Coolabar's analysis. In particular, APRA has made the big Aussie banks meet their total loss absorbing capacity, or TLAC, targets, with T2 rather than allowing them to issue cheaper, loss absorbing senior bonds, as is permitted in the US, UK and Europe. This means that Aussie banks are the biggest issuers of T2 globally and also arguably have the loftiest rating adjusted TLAC cost of capital. While Australian banks have never missed a call date on a Basel 381 hybrid or T2 bond, there have been two cases where the insurers, Challenger and Genworth, temporarily missed a call date on an 81 hybrid and a T2 bond during the 2020 pandemic shock, albeit by only a few months. With the repayment of Westpac's T2 bond, Coolabar expected significant new T2 supply in Aussie dollars, US dollars and euro. And this has been met thus far with the aforementioned ANZ deal in euros. Yeah, Yingers, and we've also seen, obviously, uh, ANZ now issue in Aussie dollars a, a 10-year T2 bond um, on an interest rate of 6.75%, which we'll come to later. Before we do, Yingers, let's get real. The RBA is not wielding a screwdriver to fine-tune the economy. No, Martin Place has a big mother truck and sledgehammer, a veritable force hammer as far as monetary policy tools go. And that's because of the huge preponderance of floating rate debt in the Aussie economy, which is unusual globally, makes it extraordinarily interest rate elastic. This elasticity was seriously impaired during the pandemic by the advent of the RBA's exceptionally powerful term funding facility, or TFF. This involved the central bank giving our private banks $188 billion of three-year fixed finance struck at an exceedingly cheap 0.1 to 0.25% annual interest rate. In March this year, the banks will start repaying this money to the RBA for the first time. The availability of near zero cost three-year loans from the RBA in massive size in turn allowed the banks to offer borrowers those crazy attractive fixed rate home loans at interest rates of about 2% annually. And so the proportion of fixed rate loans as a share of all mortgages jumped from a trivial circa 15% before the pandemic to 46% after it because of the wave of cheap money precipitated by the TFF. This has been a key reason the domestic economy has yet to be nuked by the RBA's unprecedented 3.25 percentage points of interest rate increases. Put another way, the TFF has temporarily denied Thor's hammer much less power. But as Coolbar has repeatedly explained, 
Roughly one in four Aussie homeowners are set to switch from uber low fixed rates to heinously high variable rates this year. This will be tantamount to another massive round of interest rate increases for these borrowers as 2% fixed rate mortgages transform into 6% variable rate loans. Hammer time will once again return. And crucially, this protracted delay in the pasture of the RBA's mega rate rises only accentuates the much mooted long and variable lags that are attributed to monetary policy's transmission mechanism. It also argues in favour of Martin Place exercising the very valuable option to wait at some juncture soon to observe how its radical changes to the cost of capital are reverberating through the economy. The bad news is that hopes that the RBA might either pause or be one and done in February were dashed by the surprisingly high inflation data released covering the final quarter of last year. One positive takeaway from this data was that underlying or core inflation in Australia peaked in the September quarter at 1.9% and thereafter declined to 1.7% in the December quarter. There was also the silver lining that the headline inflation result of 7.8% was slightly below the RBA's more pessimistic forecast of 8%. And we should find that the peak for headline inflation is likely to be in the December quarter. The negative was that the quarterly and year-on-year core inflation numbers of 1.7% and 6.9%, respectively, were above both the market and the RBA's projections, which were 1.5% and 6.5%. The fly in the omen here is that elevated core inflation is not being driven purely by pandemic-affected supply-side rigidities. When Coolabar excludes goods most affected by the pandemic from measures of underlying inflation, we still get very high outcomes, which implies that policy-boosted demand, exemplified by Australia's very low 3.5% jobless rate, has an important role to play in addition to the aforementioned supply chain blockages. Of course, the RBA has been very aggressive in seeking to destroy demand via its 3.25 percentage points of rate increases thus far, and more is likely to come. This should result in the RBA's cash rate exceeding 3.6% before too long. Interestingly, the RBA has used a 3.6% terminal cash rate uh, as a key assumption when modelling the ramifications of its policy changes on the wider economy. Specifically, it applied a 3.6% cash rate when seeking to understand how much households' free cash flow would be squeezed by tighter monetary policy. You might remember us highlighting previously that the RBA found that 15% of all borrowers would end up with negative free cash flow if it lifted rates this far. Now, the RBA's concept of free or spare cash was defined as borrowers' leftover income after meeting mortgage repayments and essential living expenses. Worryingly, the RBA found that 52% of all borrowers would see their free cash flow shrink by between 20% and more than 100% in this scenario. What we do know is that the inflation data is backward looking and telling us more about the inflation surge last year than the outlook for 2023. Globally, inflation rates are gradually starting to mean revert as supply chains normalise and demand inexorably deteriorates. When making its case to raise rates last year, the RBA was fond of citing its liaison and business surveys, which pointed to wage and price pressures. Those same surveys are now signaling that business conditions are weakening quickly with softer revenues, profitability and labour demand, and surveyed measures of inflation are also decelerating including labour costs, purchase costs and final product prices. And Chris, this coincides with Australia's Manufacturing and Services Purchases Manufacturing Indices, or PMIs, both reporting contractionary results below the 50 threshold. Our Manufacturing and Services PMIs have, in fact, been falling since May 2021 when the RBA began lifting rates. CBA's economists note that, quote, both manufacturing and services input prices fell in January end quote, which is, quote, in line with other pricing indicators, including those in the NAB business survey that suggests the peak of inflation was in late 2022, end quote. These more timely indicators of economic activity resonate with what we are observing in the US, 
which appears to be cyclically leading Australia with a peak in its core inflation rate in the first half of 2022. Goldman Sachs reports that US, quote, business surveys are flashing red with empire-fed business conditions and several other prominent measures already at recessionary levels, end quote. As with Australia, the US is experiencing cross-currents in its data releases as interest rate increases take time to work their way through the system. Even though the housing market is rolling over and price pressures have eased from historically lofty levels, employment and recent growth data have remained relatively robust. Note that the US did suffer two quarters of negative GDP growth over the first half of 2022. The US Federal Reserve has ameliorated the pace of its policy tightening process by shifting to a more modest 0.25 percentage point increases at its February meeting, bringing the Fed funds rate to between 4.5% to 4.75%. In January, the Bank of Canada joined Norges Bank in declaring it would keep rates on hold for a period after it lifted its policy rate to 4.5%. It is quite possible the Fed will do the same after its March meeting. This would furnish the RBA with elegant cover to take a concurrent breather at 3.6%, subject to the flow of data in the meantime. With the central bank's final or terminal cash rates in sight, some investors have been emboldened by the prospect of an end to the tightening cycle. JP Morgan strategists note that, quote, investors are split between recession and soft landing, with fixed income markets and our recession models suggesting the former. While buoyant equity markets, the drop in inflation and a potential lift from China reopening point toward the latter, end quote. We are in a similar camp, having presented research forecasting a U.S. recession since the start of last year. We also called for a 30% plus drawdown in U.S. equities at the end of 2021 on the back of a big jump in discount rates, among other things. Notwithstanding the subsequent correction, it is not clear to us that shocks are fully pricing in global recession risks. JP Morgan concludes that, quote, with some of the equity market moves looking extreme, markets are pricing in excessive optimism, technical flow drivers running out of steam, and potential for large reallocation from bonds to equities, we are inclined to fade the rally in stocks, end quote. Yeah, unfortunately, there's just no good news to report. And the fact remains that cash is king. Contrary to popular belief, there ain't going to be any great asset price recovery because we are witnessing a semi-permanent downward adjustment to valuations. Now, you remember the so-called new normal, that is the low rates for long paradigm? Well, it's dead. Recall how we needed a search for yield because there is no alternative, or TINA, this spawned many new asset categories and fueled crazy demand for startups and tech stocks, crypto, commercial property, high-yield debt, private loans, and income-rich equities. Those trades are all cactus. I remember a friend of mine recently uh, inheriting over $100 million from his parents, and he asked me what he should do with the money. I suggested putting it in cash. Now, he responded, quote, yeah, if property prices fall 25% and I can get 4% on my cash, if I pick the bottom in property, I'm going to make 29% once valuations bounce back. I had to break the news to him and said, words to the effect, mate, asset prices aren't going back to where they were unless interest rates go back to zero and central banks roll out QE to infinity again, which is highly unlikely in the near term. The real new normal is much higher risk-free interest rates that will force up the yields on all riskier asset classes, which in turn means that their valuations must adjust down permanently lower. Thereafter, asset prices should track changes in purchasing power driven by modest income growth. The predictable inflation crisis has become a cost-of-living crisis, which in a world obsessed about inequality has become a political crisis. And those myopic politicians have opened the door to allowing the central bankers to engage in an existential battle against the single biggest threat to their credibility in over 40 years. And the one thing central bankers obsess about is their credibility. It is why they are preternaturally wide to never admitting they are wrong and pretending that they are seers. The central bankers believe that if they do not crush inflation here and now, 
right back down to their parsimonious circa 2% targets, then they'll lose their ability to convince the community that inflation will remain within their targets over the long run. So we have the chair of the US Fed, Jay Powell, running around repeatedly exclaiming how he must, quote, stay the course. It is not well known that this was, in fact, President Ronald Reagan's motto for explaining why Americans had to put up with the economic pain imposed on them by the former Fed chair, Paul Volcker's draconian interest rate hikes during the early 1980s. Indeed, Volcker used a similar phrase, quote, keeping at it, as the title for his own autobiography. Now we have other Fed members like Thomas Barkin rallying behind the same cry. He recently commented, quote, with demand slowing but still resilient, labor markets healthy, and the added and unfortunately enduring shock of the war in Ukraine, it shouldn't be a surprise that inflation, while likely past its peak, is still elevated. That, of course, is what makes the case for us to stay the course. Let's be clear, the central bankers don't want to leave much doubt to this monetary policy tightening cycle. They're not going to spare the horses. They have explicitly stated that they would much prefer to raise rates too high and have a deeper recession than the alternative of not lifting them far enough and allowing the cursed inflation problem to become deeply embedded in consumer psyche. This is why we are likely to see the Fed push its policy rate towards 5.25%, while the RBA is similarly on track to hit a target cash rate somewhere between 35 and 4%. If the RBA's governor, Phil Lowe, prudently assumes that he's unlikely to have his current term extended, then he might be inclined to be a little more assertive with policy in the name of trying to leave his successor with a clean inflation slate. Put differently, Lowe might be minded to do all the heavy lifting before his replacement arrives. At the margin, this means higher, not lower interest rates. Although the RBA's decision-making process will be subject to the evolution of the economic data, which is assured to deteriorate quite sharply in the period ahead. According to some excellent research from one investment bank, the average Aussie borrower's mortgage repayments are still about 180 basis points behind the RBA's current hiking profile. That means these rate changes have yet to hit their cash flows and the wider economy. We've also already discussed the RBA's research showing that at a 3.6% cash rate, 15% of all borrowers will have negative cash flow. Now, one counter-argument to this is that Aussie households have built up huge savings buffers. The problem with this logic is that about 90% of the excess household deposits are actually held by individuals over the age of 55 who are least likely to have much, if any, mortgage debt. The real risk the central bankers face is that the current normalisation in global inflation settles at a level that is materially above their 2% targets. They fret that if they pause increasing the cost of capital before they are certain they have hit their targets, then they risk elongating the inflation battle and the ensuing economic damage. And make no mistake, their number one focus is demand destruction. They are singularly committed to creating job losses to loosen labour markets, to in turn reduce elevated wage growth. They consider this to be the key to securing long-term price stability. The bottom line is this is bad news for everything except cash. It means lower earnings and income growth, deeper economic retrenchments, and lower valuations as the risk-free hurdle rates inexorably rise. It means that the coming default cycle is probably going to be the worst we've seen since the 91 recession, which is going to be terrible for anyone who has lent money to risky borrowers or invested in junk debt. This default cycle will be exacerbated by the fact that the entire world was conditioned to think that the cheap money train would never stop. It was, after all, meant to be the new normal, right? Many businesses were built on the presumption that low rates were here to stay. Of course, this also infected the thinking of governments, which felt they could spend as much money as they wanted without consequences. You might remember in June 2021, Kulabar revealed that the New South Wales government had hatched a plan to issue $20 billion in extra taxpayer debt to allow its investment arm, T Corp, to punt this money on global stocks. 
The idea was that they would issue 10-year New South Wales government bonds at an uber low cost of about 1% per annum, and then gamble that on the assumption that they would earn a superior return in stocks. When quizzed on this extraordinary strategy at an investor briefing, an official simply responded that if stocks always go up over the long run and interest rates remain low, everything will be fine. Coolabar countered, but what happens if inflation pressures force interest rates much higher and equities much lower? And again, this was in mid-2021. Our criticisms were dismissed out of hand back then by T Corp. But today, New South Wales pays about 4.5% interest on its 10-year bonds, almost as much as the fully frank dividend yield on CBA shares. And of course, the value of global stocks has plummeted. Had we not stopped this plan in its tracks and then forced New South Wales to preemptively reduce its debt by $11 billion, the state's coffers would have been completely trashed. So Chris, when the central banks do get around to taking a breather they may be very slow to offer up any interest rate relief. The RBA, for example, is not forecasting inflation returning to its target 2-3% to 3% ban until 2025. With earnings recessions on their way, it is hard to fathom how equities are going to perform. I mean, even high-yielding equities are only paying 6% annual income returns. And note recently, ANZ issued a triple B plus tier 2 bond that pays 6.75% annually. We actually bought this bond. If you can get that sort of return on bank bonds, why would you be buying vastly riskier and less liquid equities offering inferior yields? Another expression of this capital structure paradox can be found in the listed hybrid market, where major bank hybrids are now paying superior total franked yields to the franked dividend yields on major bank stocks. We haven't seen this occur since early 2016. Needless to say, this is all horrible news for the commercial and residential property markets, which are going to undergo truly massive price declines in order to compete with the much higher yields available on cash, government bonds and bank bonds. Yeah, you're going to say that true. The sad news is it's official. As a result of the RBA's record interest rate hikes, the great Aussie housing crash has now racked up a 10% cumulative price decline. Now, that's just a touch below the all-time 43-year record of circa 10.7% between 2017 and 2019. And this is based on data provided by CoreLogic through to 5 February 2023. Note also, this analysis uses the CoreLogic 5 Capital City Index, which is publicly reported. You might get slightly different numbers if you use the 8 Capital City Index. The nation's largest city, Sydney, has suffered a cumulative loss that now exceeds 14%. Also a shade below the biggest drawdown since the early 1980s, which was the 14.9% decline Sydney registered between 2017 and 19. Losses in Brisbane have breached 10.8% and are running at a 16% annual pace based on the last quarter of data, while Melbourne house price declines will soon pass 10%. Using the last 90 days of price changes to 5 February, I have national house prices falling at a 12.2% annual rate. The RBA has obviously hiked in February and assuming they continue to hike again in March and possibly more after that, it's hard to see these unprecedented price falls attenuating in the next few months, especially considering, as we noted earlier, that one in four Aussie home lines switch from fixed to variable in the next year. Back in October 2021, we forecast a 15 to 25% peak to drop decline in national house prices, exclusively as a function of the RBA's hiking cycle. It is likely that the lower bound of this forecast range will be penetrated in the next five to six months. And I expect that the all-time record for national capital city house price declines will be trashed within the next month. Now, that's all, folks. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it to the end of the podcast, 
Uh, we really appreciate your engagement uh, and don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, you can shoot us an email at info at coolbycapital.com. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.